I love cooking over charcoal. I've got a little Smoky Joe at home. I, I love firing it up and, and cooking burgers and brats over charcoal. I've got a gas grill, and I can fire that thing up like nothing. You know, it just takes no time at all. But it's worth it to get the coals going and, and cook over charcoal. There's something about meat that's been cooked over charcoal. It just tastes better. And uh, there is this distinctive flavor to it. There's a distinctive smell associated with it. Do you, do you cook with charcoal? Anybody here cook with charcoal? You, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's a great thing. Um, you come in from cooking and you smell like charcoal. And you, you maybe hang your jacket up in the closet and uh, next time you take the jacket out, you're just right back there again. You know, you smell the charcoal on your jacket and you're right there by the fire once again. They say that of the five senses, the sense of smell is uh, the one that will bring you back to a memory like no other sense can. Whether it's the smell of someone's cologne or perfume or smell of charcoal or, or the smell of something that's as particularly foul, just a whiff of it, and in your memory, you're right back to where you were the first time you smelled it. Hold on to that thought and enter the mind of Simon Peter with me. Think back a few Sundays to the day we looked at him in John chapter 18 and saw him denying knowing his Lord. He denied three times, even knowing Jesus. It was his greatest failure. You'll remember Peter was determined to be faithful to Jesus. In Matthew's account, in chapter 26, Peter actually said in front of all of the other disciples that even if all of them fell away, he would be true to Jesus. He said that right in front of the other guys. What's the implication? I'm more committed to you, Lord, than these guys are. And Jesus told him that that very night he would deny knowing him. That was on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested. And when the temple guard came to arrest Jesus, Peter tried. He tried to defend him. You'll recall that he, he drew his sword and took off the right ear of a temple servant named Malchus. How do you take off the right ear of someone who's standing in front of you? It's, you've got your sword on your left hip, and you're trying to take off his head, and he ducks. So Peter took off his ear, and, and Jesus said, put away your sword, Peter. And he put Malchus's ear back on. Peter then followed Jesus to the house of the high priest, and we see him in chapter 18 of John's Gospel standing in the courtyard of the high priest, warming himself by a charcoal fire. Hoping to maybe get a glimpse of what's going on inside the house of the high priest, maybe he's going to overhear some of what's going on there. Peter's still waiting for his opportunity, maybe to come in and rescue Jesus from this whole thing. So Peter's outside by a charcoal fire while Jesus is on trial inside. 
And maybe John shares that detail because a charcoal fire casts a lot less light than a wood fire does. You know, when you throw another log on, on a wood fire, it, it, it blazes and, and, and the light shines pretty brightly all around. And I'm sure Peter took some comfort in the fact that it was a charcoal fire and just had a kind of a mild glow, no, no big feature illuminating light. So Peter is waiting for an opportunity to do something to rescue Jesus from the Jewish leaders, especially if they're intending to turn Jesus over to the Romans. The girl at the gate had asked him, you're not one of Jesus' followers too, are you? And the way she asked it, you're not, are you, kind of assumes a no answer. So it's pretty easy for Peter to just sort of shrug that off and go, nope, not, not me, no. And then standing around the fire, someone else has been watching Peter ever since he arrived. And he asks him the same question. And he asks it the same way. You're not one of this guy's followers too, are you? Easy again for him to shrug it off. The, the, the way the question is phrased, it anticipates a no answer. But then it happens. Someone else at the fire looks at Peter's face, looks at his clothing, sizes him up. And it happens that this man was there in the garden when Peter pulled the sword on Malchus. And to make matters worse, this guy's a relative of Malchus. And he says, wait a minute. I recognize you. You were there in the garden with Jesus, weren't you? Unlike the first two, this question anticipates a yes answer. It's pretty much a direct accusation. You were there. I saw you. And now, Peter isn't just trying to buy some time. Peter is now trying to save his own skin. And so he denies for a third time knowing Jesus. This time, uh, he recognizes that uh, he's not going to get off with just sort of shrugging it off. According to the other Gospels, he accompanies this third denial with oaths, calling down judgment on himself if he's lying. Of course, he is lying. He just wants to make his lies look more believable. So he does all of this. And at that moment, the rooster crows. It was the thing Jesus said would happen, the thing that Peter said would never happen, the thing Peter thought was unimaginable, and it's happened. And according to the other gospel writers, Peter leaves the courtyard and weeps bitterly. That's late Thursday night when Peter denies knowing Jesus. In the morning, Jesus is taken to Pilate. He is questioned, he is scourged, and he is crucified. And Peter knows he did nothing to prevent that. As much as he wanted to, he did nothing to prevent it. And to make matters worse, he has even denied knowing him, the thing he said he'd never do. It's Peter's biggest failure. And then, as we saw last week on Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene comes running to him and to John and says, 
Someone has taken the body from the tomb, and we don't know what they've done with it. Well, that gets them running to the tomb. John arrives first, hesitates to go in. Peter's not known for hesitation. Peter catches up and, and goes straight into the tomb. And the two of them are looking at the evidence. They see the grave closed, trying to figure out what to make of it all. And John tells us they didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus needed to rise from the dead. The account ends by telling us they went back to their homes. But that evening, the disciples are all together in one place behind locked doors because they're still fearful of the Jewish leaders. And in that setting, Jesus comes to them, suddenly is there with them, greets them, shows them his wounds, gives them a preview of Pentecost. Thomas, of the remaining disciples, isn't there. He, he misses it all, but he's there a week later when Jesus appears again to these disciples who are still hiding behind locked doors. And Thomas, in what someone has called the climax of John's gospel, declares to Jesus, my Lord and my God. It looks like John's going to end his gospel there at the end of chapter 20. He says, Jesus did many other things that aren't written in this book, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That'd be a great ending. It'd be a great ending for John's gospel. But John doesn't end his gospel there. He adds chapter 21. It's sort of an epilogue. Because there's some unfinished business that John wants to record, and that unfinished business has to do with Peter. It's his restoration. Chapter 21. If you have a Bible with you, I would uh, encourage you to turn to John chapter 21. We won't, won't read the whole thing, but we're going to do a little bit of walking through it. I think my ushers have disappeared. <laughs> I think they gave up on me. I'm wondering if I would actually ask them to distribute Bibles. We've got a couple guys going for it. All right. If you need a Bible, just catch the attention of one of these guys, and we've got one for you. It's a paperback, um, and uh, we're going to be on uh, uh, page 757. It's always good to have God's Word open in front of you as we go through it. And uh, so John chapter 21, page 757. Thank you, guys. This is Peter's restoration. Now, how long chapter 21 takes place after Jesus appeared to the disciples for the first time? We don't really know. It doesn't say. We know that there was a week in between that first Easter evening when he appeared to the, the disciples in the upper room and the time that he appeared to them again when Thomas was there. And it's been some time since then all we know is they're in Galilee now, which is about 70 miles away. And they were on foot getting there to Galilee. So a couple of weeks probably, Jesus had told them to go to Galilee. 
but he's not given them any further instructions. And so they are there in Galilee, just kind of hanging out. And one day, Peter announces, I'm going fishing. It's in verse 3. I'm going fishing. And it seems he's not just headed to the shore with a fishing pole. I think Peter is announcing here that he's returning to the fishing business. It's been a good run, but it appears to be over. I'm going back to fishing. Six others join him. And they fish all night and they catch nothing. Great start for the new business. At daybreak, someone appears on the shore. And in verse 5, this stranger on the shore asks them if they've caught anything. And the way the question is phrased, it suggests that the person on shore is expecting a no answer. He's saying essentially, hey boys, haven't caught anything, have you? No, we haven't. Thank you so much for reminding us. He tells them to throw their nets over the other side of the boat. This is like the oldest fishing joke in the world, right? Try the other side of the boat. It, it ranks right up there with painting an X on the bottom of your boat to mark a great fishing spot, right? This is, this is an old, old joke. So who is this guy on the shore anyway? But they throw their nets over the other side of the boat. Why they do it, I don't know, but they do. And they get so many fish, they can't haul them all in. Memories start flooding back in the mind of Simon Peter. Jesus takes Peter right back to the very beginning of their association together. Takes Peter right back to the day that Jesus first called him to follow. It's recorded in Luke chapter 5, and uh, I'd encourage you just to turn back, not too many pages, to Luke chapter 5. In, in this Bridge Bible, it's page 718, Luke chapter 5. And look with me at the first 11 verses. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's another name for the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, Simon who would be called Peter, asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. A little further out, get a little distance from the crowd there and, and continue to teach. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. Haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. 
When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partner. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Jesus had borrowed Peter's boat to a little distance from the crowd so that he could teach them. When he was finished, he told Peter, go a little deeper and throw out your net. Peter caught so many fish that the net started to break. And they got their partners, brought their boat into the mix, and the fish were so much weight that both boats almost sank. What's interesting is Peter's response. Here in Luke chapter 5, he wants to get away from Jesus. He says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He recognizes Jesus is holy. He recognizes he's not. He says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And Peter leaves the fishing business to follow Jesus. And now in John chapter 21, Jesus repeats the miracle. But Peter's response is entirely different this time. Instead of wanting to get away from Jesus, he wants to get near him. He wants to be there with him. And so he puts on his clothes and he steps out of the boat. Do any of you put on extra clothing when you're about to go swimming? Me neither. I generally get down to nothing but a swimsuit. Peter put on extra clothes before stepping into the water. What's going on there? I think Peter's remembering another moment in his life with Jesus. Memory number two. It comes in Matthew chapter 14 after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus sends the disciples out on the sea to get to the other side while he goes up on a mountainside to pray. And then he comes to them during the night as they are rowing against the wind. The wind keeps pushing them back, probably ending up holding them in place. And Jesus comes to them in the midst of this windy, stormy condition. And they see him coming and someone shouts out, it's a ghost. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter says, if it really is you, Lord, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat and walks to Jesus until the storm distracts him. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the storm around him and begins to sink, and Jesus grabs him by the hand and pulls him up and says, why did you doubt? Peter remembers. On that morning, when Jesus calls from the shore, Peter says, it's the Lord. And he wants to be with him, and so he steps over the side of the boat. I believe he's thinking he can do it again. I think Peter thinks, 
I can do it better this time. This time I won't doubt. This time I'll keep my eyes on Jesus. This time I won't be distracted by the storm. This time, and he splashes into the water. What's that all about? I think the difference is that this time he didn't ask Jesus to call him. This time he just decided he's going to do it on his own. You ever thought you could do something only to discover that God hadn't called you to do it? How'd that go for you? What happens? You, you realize that you're going to have to rely on your own strength. You won't have his there to help you, and you're likely to go for a swim. So Peter gets to swim to shore fully dressed while the others row the boat to shore and step ashore dry. That's in verse 8. The bottom line, though, is that with the miraculous catch of fish, Jesus is taking Peter back to the beginning, back to the day when he invited Peter in Luke chapter 5 to follow him. That had to make an impact on Peter, being invited back to experience that again. And what did Peter and the others find when they got to shore? Jesus had fixed breakfast for them. Fish cooked over a charcoal fire. Wait a minute. What kind of fire was it? Charcoal fire. Flashback to chapter 18, to the scene in the courtyard where Peter's standing by a charcoal fire and denies knowing Jesus. It's interesting to me, the NIV doesn't identify what type of fire it was. But I'll tell you, the Greek text does, and any other translation you pick up will. That's why I always recommend, read a passage through in a few different translations. It's helpful to understand the range of things. The thing is, there are only two places in the New Testament that refer to a charcoal fire, and they're right here. Chapter 18, chapter 21. In the courtyard of the high priest where Peter warmed himself and denied knowing his Lord, and here in chapter 21 where Peter is restored. Peter smells the charcoal once again. Jesus not only took Peter back to his initial call with that huge catch of fish, but he also takes him back to his biggest failure with that charcoal fire. Why would he do that? Well, maybe it would be so that whenever Peter smelled the charcoal fire again, he wouldn't just think of his biggest failure but that he would think about the day that Jesus invited him to start over. Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And we say, more than these what? Some would suggest that he's asking Peter if he loves Jesus more than this record catch of fish. There are 153 of them lying there, after all. 
Who did the counting? Kind of picture Matthew there, kind of counting them up. But there's 153 of them, and, and maybe Jesus is saying, so what's it going to be, Peter, me or the fishing business? I called you from the fishing business. You decided to return to the fishing business. I'm inviting you back. It's going to be me or fishing. That's possible, possible. I think there's another possibility that is more likely. I think it's more likely that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these other guys do? In chapter 26 of Matthew, you remember that Peter said, even if they all turn away from you, I never will. And Jesus is saying, well, how about it, Peter? What is it now? You really love me more than they do? You said even if they all fell away, you wouldn't. What do you say now? Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter can't really say anything besides, Lord, you know. You know I do. Don't really have anything to show for it, but you know. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. I've got work for you to do, Peter. I've got a flock that needs tending. You're my man. And then he asks him in verse 16, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, well, you know I do. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. I really do want to use you. I'm entrusting my sheep to your care. And then he asks him in verse 17, Peter, do you love me? And it says, Peter is grieved now. Jesus has asked him three times. And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. I've got plans for you, Peter. You're going to be an under-shepherd of mine. And we look at that and we ask, why is Peter grieved? Some would suggest that it's because Jesus has switched verbs on him. The first two times he asks, he uses the verb form of agape love, that, that godly love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, rich and full. Peter, do you love me? With that kind of love. And then the third time he asks him, he uses the verb form of philos, love, which is friendship, love. To say, Peter, do you even love me as a friend? And Peter's grieved. That is a possible explanation, but I, I think as I've researched this, that it's not all that likely. John changes words around often in his gospel. When he has us expecting one, he'll use another. But I think the answer to the question of why Peter is grieved is in the text. It's in verse 17. It says that, that he's grieved because Jesus had asked him a third time. Not because he switched verbs on him. 
So why did he ask him three times? Well, how many times did Peter deny knowing Jesus? Three times. Three in the Bible is a number of completion. Peter had completely denied knowing Jesus. And Jesus completely restored him. Jesus connects with this dejected disciple, this failure named Peter who did the worst thing imaginable, denied knowing Jesus. Blew it as completely as you or I could ever blow it. And Jesus takes him back to the beginning, back to the day that he invited Peter to follow him. And then he takes him back to his lowest point, his biggest failure, when he denied even knowing Jesus. And then in full recognition of his failure, he completely restores him for service. Jesus meets us in our failures. Even the things we think would disqualify us from his service. And in his grace, he asks, do you love me? That's what he wants to know. Do you love me? And he restores us completely and gives us the privilege of being his man, his woman, in his service. We all fail from time to time. Sometimes we fail so completely we think God could never forgive us and that he certainly would never use us. Let me ask you, think about your biggest failure. Do you think your failure was worse than Peter's? And if Jesus could completely restore Peter, don't you think he can completely restore you too? Next time you're standing by a charcoal fire, it's good to keep that in mind. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that we fail. We fail Often, we fail in such ways that we think you could never use us again. And yet, we hear these words to Peter, do you love me? And we hear Jesus asking us the same question. And like Peter, we reply, Lord, you know I do. And we experience the kind of restoration that only Jesus can give. And we're grateful Father, I pray that in our failures we would run to you, not run from you, and find in you the restoration that you long to give. So, Father, we we look to you, pray that you would cause us to live lives of such gratitude to you that we gladly and wholeheartedly serve you. And when we fail, that we would run to you and find the forgiveness that waits for us there. In Jesus' name.